Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Moore Cronin. I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing 2023. That means we'll be making predictions for the new year following the PEST model of analysis, assessing what's likely to change politically, economically, socially, and technologically in 2023. And at the end, we'll get into the worst case, best case, and most likely future scenarios for next year. Sound good? Sounds good. Awesome. All right. Well, let's start with the political predictions. And I wanted to start with the horseshoe theory. Have you ever heard of this theory before? No, I haven't. What is it? Basically, it's a way of representing the political spectrum. And usually you have it as a linear spectrum where you have the far left, the left, the center left, the center right, and then the far right. And Mm -hmm. so it's kind of one linear spectrum. But the horseshoe theory actually purports that the far extremes are more similar than the center. And so it actually represents the spectrum as a horseshoe. So Mm. the center, center left, center right are all more similar to each other than far left and far right, which are actually much closer to each other than the center. Hmm. So my prediction uh, politically for 2023 is that we are going to see the horseshoe theory play out where the extremes will be shown to be more similar to one another, the far right and the far left, than the center. And I think we're going to have a return to the center. And part of why I think this is the case is because after what we saw in the midterms, it's pretty clear that the party of Trump is dead. You know, Trump endorsed mm-hmm. some 300 candidates for the midterms, and most of them did not win their election. Whereas DeSantis, who's probably more of a moderate Republican, the candidates that took the approach that he had taken did a lot better. And so I think the the whole political spectrum is different than what it was in, for instance, the 2020 election, because mm-hmm. not everyone is either going for Trump or against Trump. That's kind of a no longer makes sense. It's more yeah. about getting back to the actual issues. So I don't think the Democrats will be able to just run on, hey, we're, we're not Trump, like we're the anti-Trump party, which is pretty much what they did in 2020. Instead, I think the issues will matter again. Issues like the national debt, like the war in Ukraine, like all of the spending the government is doing, like inflation and cost of living and healthcare and immigration. All of these issues will start to matter again because there's no longer just going to be this simplified, either you hate Trump or you love Trump. Uh, I think that is going to be put to bed in 2023. Yeah, I like that, the concept of, you know, the the far extremes sort of wrapping around to each other. And it it makes a lot of sense too, because at some point, to me, it seems like the arguments become a little incoherent for, from both sides. And it seems like, like you said, there's some awareness of that happening. There's people are starting to see that this is not, a sustainable situation and maybe we've gone a little bit hard to one side or another. I do think there will still be like some polarization and there are polarizing figures. I do worry that like Elon is positioning himself as like in the political realm. Like he's kind of been away from that, but now he's kind of, now he's, uh, he's dipping his toe to a degree, but this might be a little bit more on the social side of things than the, yeah, I was going to say, I have a lot to say about that in the social uh, section of this, but I will say that 
I think one thing Elon did that's related to the political area is he allowed Trump to come back on Twitter, but -hmm. Trump hasn't taken the bait. He hasn't actually tweeted anything. He's just stayed on Truth Social. And Mm -hmm. I don't think Trump has the slightest chance of winning the election or even becoming the GOP nominee unless Mm -hmm. he is on Twitter. And it doesn't look like he will. I mean, maybe he will. Who knows? But he also came out a couple of days ago with this Trump NFT collection that was just so embarrassing. I don't know if you Ooh. saw that, <laughs> but it's just the shoddiest artwork. A lot of the artwork he actually stole from stock image sites and didn't even pay the licensing fee. And oh he announces this as like his major announcement. And so he's already lost anyone who's a Bitcoiner or not into NFTs. I think he's kind of alienated. And mm-hmm. it seems almost cowardly that he's not willing to talk on Twitter and defend his his points of view. And the same day he released the NFT collection, he also released his free speech uh, platform where he says he's going, you know, ban federal agencies from colluding to censor American citizens, uh, ban taxpayer dollars from using the label misinformation or disinformation, fire every bureaucrat. It's and some of these are actually seem like good policies, but the way it's written is so authoritarian. It's like, it's like, ban this, fire that, um, you know, mm-hmm. pass some new law, a new digital bill of rights. And it's like, we don't need that. We already have the First Amendment. Just passing more laws and issuing more executive orders, in my opinion, is not mm-hmm. the way forward. So I think it's quite likely that the political candidates that actually do well in the 2024 election are the more moderate candidates. So on the GOP side, it's not going to be Trump. It's going to be DeSantis or someone more like DeSantis. On Mm -hmm. the Democratic side, I think, you know, the reason Biden got elected was because he positioned himself as more moderate. And he hasn't actually acted that way since he's been in power. He's pretty much just done whatever the far left wants him to do. And that's mm-hmm. probably because because of his age. He just doesn't have the wherewithal to actually push forward what he believes. So he just does what his handlers tell him. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that also is not going to work for the Democratic side. If there's anyone decent on the GOP side, I don't see Biden being a shoe in at all. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Kamala's clearly not a shoe in. And I think Gavin Newsom is even worse than uh, Biden. Or I mean, the policies mm-hmm. he's implemented in California have been terrible. And gas prices yep. have gone up and it just has not been good. Mm-hmm. So hopefully the Democrats have someone that is more moderate that can actually have a fighting chance against someone like DeSantis, who's more moderate. And then we can actually discuss the issues again. And it's not just going to be a tribal warfare of mudslinging of, oh, you like Trump or you hate Trump. It'll actually be a real election about the issues. Hopefully, yeah. you know, it might be wishful thinking, but we'll see. <laughs> Well, I, I think that's true. And I also, one other thing I'll add to that is it seems like the, the gerontocracy is crumbling. Oh, People yeah. People are realizing that we probably shouldn't have 80-year-olds running everything. Well, you have know? you seen the chart that shows the average age of a congressperson back in the early United States to today? It's wild. I haven't, actually. I'd imagine it's a lot younger than so in the early days of America, like the roaring 20s and even around World War I and that time period, the average congressperson was like 40 to 45 years old. Mm-hmm. And now the average congressperson is like 60 to 70 years old. 
So it just it just shows that it's so disconnected from what the working population needs as far as their leadership, especially given how fast technological changes have been mm-hmm. in the last 20 years. It's almost like we've had the same generation since the 1970s has been in power the entire time. They've just aged up like 30 years since then. Yeah, and it kind of makes sense that like once you get into power, you want to keep the power for you and your friends. You know, like I I understand how this that can emerge from what we've created, but like, yeah, the I don't know. It just it makes me lose a little bit of like trust in the system that that's how it's being run. But I think people are like realizing that as a whole too. So yeah, hopefully the the democracy aspect of our country is you know able to overcome this the systemic failure because yeah well part of the issue is that the baby boomer generation they're the ones that really implemented the social security system where you have to take a certain amount of every paycheck before the employee Mm -hmm. even sees it and it goes to social security and then the idea is everyone pays into this and then once you retire and you're 65 years or older you can just live off of that social security but the whole system is a scam because they've already sent, they've already spent all of that money and it's, they're not storing it safely for you. So the only way they can fund these unfunded liabilities is by creating new money out of nothing, which devalues the money you're actually getting. And so it really is this Ponzi system that the boomers had set up and the boomers benefit from. And no one who's younger benefits at all. I mean, there's no chance that the money you or I or our kids or anyone who's at all young is going to pay that we're going to see a cent of that. Or if we do, it'll be a cent that's been so devalued that it's basically (laughs) worthless. And so that's, I think, one of the other reasons why the gerontocracy, as you said, has kept power these last 30 years because they have to safeguard this system that's been put in place. But at a certain point, the millennial purchasing power will be greater than the baby boomer purchasing power. And the voter Mm -hmm. base for millennials will be greater than the baby boomer voter base. And then Mm -hmm. I think we're just going to see those systems will dissolve. New systems may replace them. But fundamentally, the era of just creating new money out of nothing to fund programs that never made mathematical sense in the first place Mm -hmm. is going to come to an end. And it's really a matter of when, not if. Yeah. Do you think it would happen in 2023? Will it come no, to an end? No. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of my just overall prediction for 2023 is that I don't think 2023 is going to be a season finale type of year. Mm-hmm. It's going to be more like a boring season, you know, one maybe one season before the finale where you kind of set yeah. up all the players. Yeah. And, So 2024, I mean, that's going to be the big year, right? Mm Because that's the year we have presidential election, we have the Bitcoin halving, and we Uh, will have tightened the economy to such an extent that we will need a Fed reversal by that point. We will need to turn the money printers on full blast. So when you combine those three things, money printer on full blast, US election, and Bitcoin going to the moon, I mean, the whole world is going to be different after 2024. But, you know, we're still discussing 2023. So maybe we get into now the economic predictions for 2023. Okay. 
I can I can give some thoughts here. So I don't feel particularly qualified to talk about like public markets and stuff like that, but I do feel fairly familiar with the startup space and like kind of the private world, at least in the US. Um, we've there's been a I mean a total dry up in funding for not a total dry up, but it's, it's like resources are more, much more scarce than they were previously. And in some sense, I think that's a good thing because some of the most valuable companies are built in these times where companies have to be really mindful about how they spend their money. And we're leaving the era of, you have an idea that sounds cool, you get a million to $5 million before even building a product and having any users. That's, yeah. that's not something you can do anymore. Yeah. But the $5 million dollar that, PowerPoint pitch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, if, if you, if you're someone that came from Stanford and you had a, you know, an idea of something that had a big potential market, you will get funded. It It was, <laughs> It's just the way that things were for several years, actually. But I think it's probably a healthy thing that we're seeing this constriction. And it's going to continue constricting, I think, through 2023. Um, and I was listening to the All In podcast, uh, for the most recent one. And one of the things that um, they were all predicting is a lot of these more bloated late stage companies will be bought out by... Um, private equity companies and yeah. they will make the decisions, the hard decisions to cut and trim a lot of the fat that uh, they've accumulated over the course of their funding rounds and, you know, having these extravagant offices and really great perks to try to attract all of the talent. And, you know, I, I yeah. understand the need for these things. And if you have the money, why not? But, some companies haven't really adjusted their spending thinking like, oh, we're going to be able to <laughs> keep raising at these valuations. Like, you know, in the first season of Game of Thrones, when the Ned Stark says, you were born in the long summer, you have no, no knowledge of the cold. <laughs> and I, I feel yeah. like that's where a lot of startups are, where they raised money during the easy money, zero interest rate environment. And mm -hmm. now if they have to raise another round, it's going to be a down round. Their valuation will be demolished. Mm -hmm. And no investor, no VC who's already invested or founder wants to raise a down round. So mm -hmm. basically their options are cut expenses like crazy so they can extend the money they currently have for as long as possible. Or they have to, like you said, get bought out by private equity and then private equity will do the same thing. They'll fire everyone who's not 100% necessary They'll mm -hmm. automate, they'll downsize to a smaller office. And it's really interesting how similar this trend is across so many different areas of the economy. So mm -hmm. for instance, I saw a really interesting thread on the auto industry and repos, like repossessions. And mm -hmm. basically what happened, so people who got a car loan and, you know, like a year or two ago during mm -hmm. the easy money environment, their cars were actually worth more back then. And so they got this loan at like a low interest rate for this car. And now the value of the car is like $10,000 less. Mm -hmm. So they're in many cases 
the loan amount that they still have to pay is actually more than the value of the car now. So it would not make sense to keep paying your loan if what you still owe is now worth more than the cost of the car. <laughs> and so a lot of people now are no longer paying their car loans. And mm -hmm. the even craziest thing is that now they're actually getting new loans on a new car that's less expensive and then just letting their old loan get their old car get repossessed. So it's like this dog eat dog world of because the car industry needs to keep selling cars and signing these loans, they're willing to loan a car to someone who didn't even pay their previous car loan because they understand that those people are underwater and they're at least somewhat likely to pay this new car loan at the lower amount. And then this wave of repossessions will hit and companies like Carvana are going under mm -hmm. and a lot of the easy money car companies that basically just tried to get as much business as possible are now underwater because the value of the cars has gone down. Mm -hmm. So that seems pretty foreboding in the auto industry. In the real estate industry, I think a housing crash is really likely. And there's this chart that shows the previous housing bubble in 2008. And now in 2022, equity is way higher than debt levels. Like the, the size of the bubble in the housing market is like three to four times as big as it was oh, in 2008. And so if the Fed keeps tightening, it is quite likely that we're going to see a bigger housing crash than we saw in 2008. It'll make 2008 look like peanuts compared to this. Oh my gosh. That See, that kind of thing is... <laughs> that's a little terrifying. Like I know, I know these corrections are they they need to happen for a healthy functioning market. But the fact, you know, ideally we don't get here in the first place. But there's just the well, that's the thing is when you when you've gotten to this point, the only thing that can fix it is a correction or a you mm. know returning to the mean. Yeah. And so there is no like just keeping the bubble going forever and ever and ever. It's really just who gets stuck holding the bag. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Uh, and then I just sent you another image that I thought was really telling, which is the Federal Reserve put out this projected monetary policy for the next mm -hmm. five years. And you can see that we already have pretty high interest rates, you know, relative to the last five or 10 years. We have, you know, over a four interest rate right now, about four and a half. Mm -hmm. The Fed is predicting it will keep hiking up interest rates throughout all of 2023 to five, maybe even as high as 6% interest rates. And Elon has said recently that if the Fed gets to those levels, he, he thinks the whole economy is going to break because so much, so much of the, the you know, debt and loans that people have taken out are lower than that. And so it's just, they're not going to be able to operate with that high of interest rates on mm -hmm. the money they, they still owe. Yep. And if you look at how this is projected, basically we already have high interest rates in 2022. 2023 is predicted to be higher. 2024 is predicted to be as high as 2023 or lower. Mm -hmm. And then 2025 is predicted to be lower. So basically what the Fed is predicting is that we'll keep hiking throughout all of 2023 and then we'll start easing the monetary mm -hmm. policy again, which is kind of like just what we were discussing about 2024 being the season finale year. <laughs>
Um, so given that, if that actually is accurate, if the Fed does continue to hike rates through all of 2023, I mean, I think there's no safe asset other than bearer assets like Bitcoin and gold. I think mm. the stocks are going to continue to fall. You know, you look at the ratio of earnings to equity value and they're still really high. Like even for Tesla, which has been one of the best performing stocks, I think it's going to crash to maybe even like, you know, 50 to 100 per share. And a mm. lot of other big tech companies will also continue to crash. There's just still a lot more fat to trim there. Yeah. I think in the, uh, you know, in the crypto industry, I think there's going to be more collapses of crypto exchanges and trusted third parties. Specifically, Binance has been getting the most attention and I do think they are at risk of collapse and they are one of the biggest crypto exchanges in the world, if not the biggest. Also, Gemini has paused withdrawals. They're one of the biggest ones in the US. They're oh, likely, really? and they've been considered one of the most trustworthy ones, but they have paused withdrawals and that's not a good sign. And then Nexo is another one that's not as big, but it actually might be the first one to collapse because they offer like crazy high return, like 16% or something, which is just not sustainable. So mm. if you have money on any of these exchanges, I would recommend getting it off immediately. And yeah. so really the only thing that I think is safe is Bitcoin and like bearer asset like gold. Um, and the thing is, the last thing I'll say for the economic predictions is that the base case is that we don't see Bitcoin hit another all-time high in 2023. If the Fed continues to tighten, it stands to reason that every asset will do poorly. Mm -hmm. Crypto, stocks, bonds, real estate, Bitcoin, gold, literally everything will not do well. Mm -hmm. But relatively speaking, obviously some assets will do better than others. And the real question is, if and when the Fed does pivot, What's your position at that time? Because there's not going to be time to all of a sudden buy in on whatever asset you think is going to do well when the Fed does reserve, reverse course. I mean, mm -hmm. we're going to see something, I think, like after 2020, we had the V-shaped recovery where the market crashed and then immediately thereafter, it hit new all-time highs and everything was through the roof, like just rising in value to an incredible degree. Mm -hmm. That's because the Fed printed $13 trillion since COVID. And they did it pretty much immediately once the COVID crash happened. The only reason why we haven't seen that now is because the Fed hasn't been printing money. They've been tightening. Mm -hmm. So I think the most, the wisest move is to already have the long-term assets that you think are going to do well before the Fed pivots. And as long as you do that, you'll be fine. And so the only ones I think are worth holding is Bitcoin, you know, bearer precious metals like gold mm -hmm. and then really high quality companies. Like I think energy stocks are everyone's going to always need energy. Mm -hmm. And then also I think there are some value stocks, like some companies that are just solid companies and they don't have really high multiples. And right. But those are really the only ones I think is safe. And people also bring up real estate. But the problem with real estate is. You're, you, you have the counterparty risk, which is the U.S. government, and you never know, are they going to implement an eviction moratorium? Are they going to raise property taxes? Are mm -hmm. they going to implement other rules? 
And so you just are more at the behest of the state if you own property. Mm-hmm. I think it's an okay investment. Like it's definitely better than crypto or, you know, some uh, crypto outside right. of Bitcoin or, yeah. you know, penny stocks or whatever, but it's mm-hmm. it still has a lot of risk. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, um, the best time to buy is going to be after whatever crash happens. Like then, okay, maybe you can get it at slightly lower prices. Like right now I was looking at the price of, um, the mortgage payment on a house that used to be worth like $700,000 that's equivalent to a mortgage payment on a house that is today worth like $400,000 because of the interest rate increase and every, you know, everything else. And it's, yeah. So that's, I mean, personally, I would only buy a house after Bitcoin's hit like a million dollars per coin. Yeah. (laughs) Because before then it's just the, opportunity cost of not holding Bitcoin and holding mm-hmm. real estate is too great in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I um, And I'm, I'm with you too on like finding some companies you really believe in. And I think that'll always be a viable strategy to just like look for the companies that you trust. You're a customer, you, you like their stuff and just buy some of their stock. And maybe buy some of it regularly, so you do a bit of dollar cost averaging. You know, it's... totally. There's a I forget who said it, but there's some quote that said, "If you wouldn't hold an asset for ten years, you shouldn't hold it for ten minutes." Mm. So only buy things yep. that you would want to hold for at least ten years, and if you do that, you'll do far better than someone mm-hmm. who day trades and is constantly buying and selling and incurring fees and getting front mm-hmm. run and. It's just the day trading way of life is not the way to go if you actually want to build long-term wealth. Like look at the list of Forbes' richest people. None mm-hmm. of them are day traders. They're all people <laughs> that either started companies yeah. or methodically invested every every day over time. Yep. And the thing is like you have to be right so often if you're a day trader. It just statistically is extremely difficult to pull that off long-term. I understand that there are people that have made a lot of money and some people can make a lot of money and then leave, leave, you know, exit the market and be done with it and, you know, pull their but That's so in. rare. I mean, I mean, take I a Sam Bankman Freed, for instance, here's mm-hmm. a guy that was able to day trade to become a billionaire and then lost it all because he got too greedy. And mm-hmm. I think that just shows if you're in that mindset, it's going to be really hard to walk away because you're already in that you know, quick dopamine hit kind of mindset. It's the yeah. same reason that when people are in casinos gambling, they never walk away when they've made 500 bucks. They then double down mm-hmm. and then they lose it all and then they take out more money and then they're in the hole. And that's what happens almost every time. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is an addiction. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the social section now. What kind yeah. of social predictions, if any, do you have for 2023? So I think that there's, so the, what I was thinking is there's probably not going to be a ton of changes. I think there's always going to be a current thing in that current thing. It's hard to predict because in 2023, there's going to be 20 current things throughout the year, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that 
I don't know. I, I think that the U.S. is going to be more insulated socially from the rest of the world, as it usually is. Like, our social unrest is not as catastrophic as some of the, you know, the countries in Europe, I think, are going to have some really big issues to work through, especially with the war in Ukraine, you know, moving along and with no end in sight. Um, there's, you know, always things with, you know, you, you always hear about conflict between Palestine and Israel. You, you know, it's just the, the U.S. is going to be insulated per usual is one of my predictions here. But also, it doesn't mean that the people in the U.S. won't be just as outraged about various things. And I think it's going to, there will be a similar amount of polarization. Um, I don't think we're going to have a character as polarizing as Trump in the foreseeable future, probably. But um, I yeah. worry a bit that Elon has gone down the path of polarization when he didn't really need to. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying yeah. to understand that move from his perspective. Like if there was some strategic reason that he's like getting really involved here or um, like, I understand the pursuit of free speech, but I don't know. It, I'm kind of undecided on, on how that's all playing out with Twitter. Um, you know, the Twitter yeah. files in general are a really interesting revelation. Um, totally. Yeah. There's so much to discuss there. Yeah. Well, first of all, I would just say that I think you're right that the social unrest will be greater outside of the U.S. because the economic unrest will be greater outside of the U.S. because we have the world's reserve currency. And so mm -hmm. any tightening that the Fed does will have a lesser effect on the U.S. than on other countries that are further down the rungs of the Ponzi scheme and they can't create their own money out of nothing in the same way. Mm -hmm. As far as Twitter and free speech, my major social prediction is that the pendulum will swing back towards free speech and away from censorship. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right that there will continue to be the current thing, basically ongoing psyops or ongoing mainstream narratives that everyone's supposed to think are important. Mm -hmm. And I think we kind of hit peak current thing with COVID. Like COVID, mm -hmm. everyone was freaking out. Hardly anyone questioned it initially. And since then, I think each PSYOP has been less effective at capturing everyone's attention. So like the war in Ukraine was less effective than COVID. And whatever mm -hmm. they launch next, I think is going to be less effective than that. Mm -hmm. And so it does seem like the information world is continuing to fracture into different areas. And Twitter has been kind of the one leading the charge because yeah. they have been fighting on the side of free speech. And not only that, but they've actually revealed a lot of what happened under previous management. And the Twitter file that came out recently, I thought was totally mind-blowing because not only do we know that the FBI and the CIA were colluding with Twitter to censor certain people, and you know you could say that's warranted because these are some dangerous spreaders of misinformation. The FBI and the CIA tell Twitter, hey, you might want to take a look at these accounts. They remove them. Maybe that's okay, depending on the account. Mm -hmm. But what seemed really nefarious from my point of view is that the CIA and the FBI were actually paying Twitter millions of dollars to censor specific people and specific tweets. 
So there was literally backdoor money going to Twitter's executives for the purpose of censoring speech. And this wasn't like they were censoring dangerous threats to people's safety or things like that. It was just political speech, people sharing opinions that the CIA and the FBI didn't like. Stuff like people criticizing, you know, the mandates and talking about how closing schools is going to have an impact on kids' education, which we now know is totally true. Mm-hmm. And these people were getting totally censored in Twitter's uh, search. And so I think this is just, there's no going back. Like the cat is out of the bag with that. And, mm-hmm. and here's, I think this is the crux of the issue is that mm-hmm. the real history of the world is totally different than the history we're taught in school. And the whole purpose of why there's two different histories, the real history and the one we're taught in school, is for the purpose of keeping the dollar hegemony going. If we Mm. actually learned about the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, going off the gold standard in 1971, going to 0% fractional reserve banking requirements in 2020, there would be a revolution in the streets by morning. So they can't tell people the truth. But here's the thing is if you allow free speech, eventually the truth does come out. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of good people that work for all these organizations. So it's not to say that they're all terrible people or terrible organizations, but it's important for us to allow the truth to be spoken freely so that we can correct whatever the issues are. But if we have one hidden history that only some people can find out about because they're really curious and they look into it. And then the mainstream history that's just so far from what's actually true. We are creating a gaslit generation that doesn't know how to operate in the real world because their model of reality is so warped. Mm -hmm. And really, I think it's all downstream of the money printer and the money system. If you fix the money, then I actually think most of these organizations would realign to what matters. But because every organization is fighting for dollars and those dollars are created by a centralized money printer and whoever has control of that basically gets to dictate what course we take through space and time, then there can be no bottom-up movement towards Mm -hmm. truth and justice. It's really just the top-down warping of what is true and what is just. Yeah. And so speaking of, you know, the monetary system and the CIA, I, I was trying to find the source and I, I was unable to find it, but I, I kept seeing things about CIA failing, like their fifth audit, like they're, they've oh, failed yeah. all five yeah. of their audits and have like 60% of their budget unaccounted for. I don't know yeah. if this has to do with like classified no, yeah, totally. and stuff. That but. just shows that the the money they get is not accounted for. It's not the way that the Constitution delineates it, where Congress has the power of the purse and mm-hmm. Congress has to vote for any new spending and Congress people are the representatives of the people. So they're basically acting on behalf of the people. That is not how it works at all. Mm-hmm. The way it works is that these agencies give favors in order to use the power of the money printed for themselves. And the public never really hears about how that money is created. And the Federal Reserve is not even an elected body. It's not in any way federal or part of the government. It's a consortium of banks that have monopoly over the U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's totally relevant that 
I think they also had like the Department of Defense has trillions and trillions of dollars unaccounted for like, oh, sorry, we don't know how we got all this money. We, you know, it's just here it is. And this is the case with most federal agencies, but it's all downstream of the money printer. If you get rid of the money printer and we go back to sound money, like we had under the gold standard for thousands of years, mm-hmm. then a lot of these problems just simply go away because the only way they can get more money is by creating value. It's not by buddying up to those who have the power of the money printer. Right. I wonder how long it'll take before that is like actually implemented. Like we, we get rid of this money printer. Like is Bitcoin the only way out of this or is there a way to like get back on the gold standard or like, yeah, so that's a great question. And I think currently Bitcoin is the only way out. Now, mm-hmm. it's always possible maybe some black swan event could kill Bitcoin and maybe some other cryptographic network uh, mm-hmm. supplants Bitcoin and becomes more powerful. There is a, a possibility of that. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, a return to the gold standard would not solve it because that's what got us precisely to where we are today. Yeah, And gold is, is heavy. It's physical. So you can't easily transport it across the world and you can't Mm -hmm. easily take it from an authoritarian country if you're fleeing to another country. And so it ends up being centralized in the London Bullion Bank and in all of these centralized areas. And then you can totally warp the amount of claims on that gold relative to the actual gold they're holding. So Mm -hmm. Bitcoin is is a way to improve upon that. Because it's basically like, imagine if you could instantly send gold anywhere in the world and you could actually hold your gold in your head just by memorizing 12 words. (laughs) That's basically what Bitcoin is. And because it's the first cryptographic blockchain to reach mass adoption, it has the longest record and it's the most decentralized and it's the most dispersed throughout the world. So Mm -hmm. it would take a lot for another cryptocurrency to take over Bitcoin. And personally, I don't see any single point of failure. Even if there was some massive bug in the system and Bitcoin stopped producing blocks or Mm -hmm. someone created way more Bitcoin than 21 million or any of these things happened, you could always just go back to a previous block where things were working well, fix the bug, Mm -hmm. and then keep moving forward into the future. So there's no, I can't think of any scenario where you wouldn't be able to fix whatever issue Bitcoin might encounter because it's decentralized and because it's so robust and because there's copies of the entire blockchain back from the very first block all around the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a copy of the entire Bitcoin blockchain and I could restart the network theoretically if even every other copy got demolished. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but they, I think it this, will take some years. It's not going to be in 2023. Yeah. yeah. I have this feeling that um, the the people in charge of the current money printer really, or at least certain people benefit from the fact that cash and certain types of the current system are completely anonymous. And I think if <laughs> if there's a system that doesn't allow for billions of dollars to just sort of poof out of existence or you know you just don't really know where it came from or where it went you know that benefits a lot of people in certain types of power but it doesn't seem as possible with 
Bitcoin or some sort of digital currency where you do have the full ledger. To, you can see every transaction. Even if you don't know who made it, you can at least see where it's going. Whereas cash is like, there's nothing. You you know, there, for the most part, you, it's hard to trace yeah. cash. Well, I will say cash actually isn't 100% anonymous because they right. have... They have codes on the actual yeah. dollar bills, so anytime it goes to a bank, they could mm -hmm. they couldn't track you exactly, but they could at least connect some dots. Especially if mm -hmm. you have a lot of like a tons of cash, and it's like one person mm -hmm. spending all this cash, like a yeah. mobster or something. Um, and then I would also say Bitcoin does have some privacy tools that Cash doesn't have, like Coin Joins and collaborative transactions, where mm -hmm. basically you can create a collaborative transaction with a bunch of other people who own Bitcoin, and then it mixes all of the UTXOs together. And so mm -hmm. if you're trying to surveil where this payment came from, like, let's say I donate to the truckers in Canada with Bitcoin uh, in a much more private way than they actually did mm -hmm. through a coin join, they would have no way of knowing who donated because they would see thousands of potential addresses that went into that coin join mm -hmm. and then only one output. And so you're one of thousands of possibilities. And so that's why yeah. they say privacy loves company because it's the, yeah. the more people that use cash, the more private or the more people that use coin joins, the more private. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there, there is, it's kind of interesting that there's the benefit of transparency where if you're actually tracking how the government spends money, you are able to do it in a more transparent way through Bitcoin versus mm -hmm. the fiat digital dollars. Yeah, you know, but it also has ways of being private. So, I think it is a great you know middle ground for both of those reasons. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Because obviously, with cash, there's there's a lot of issues with like laundering the money. If there's if you if you're trying to be totally anonymous and hide where it came yeah. from or that transactions happened. By the, the way, thing, money laundering I think is a psyop itself. <laughs> because the whole meaning of money is money laundering is basically spending money without the government siphoning off some of that for themselves. And mm. prior to the income tax, that was just called money. There was no money laundering. You just spent money you had and it was your money. So <laughs> However you got it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you might've gotten it from nefarious ways, but then, you know, if you upset the wrong person, they'll, they'll come after you. So it's not like it was mm. totally unchecked. Mm -hmm. But this whole idea of money laundering as being this horrible, you know, ethical imperative that we must mm -hmm. stop, I think is just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. The and then I guess with with Bitcoin, the the main one of the things you get with Bitcoin that you don't have with cash is like you can at least see the transactions. Like with cash, the money can exchange hands hundreds or thousands of times before it needs to be spent in like a legitimate source, you know? So if you think of like cartel cash transfer, for this is just a contrived example. I don't know if this is, ex <laughs> this is how it happens, but you know, you can imagine cash just transferring from one person to the next for, you know, hundreds of transfers without it ever needing to be spent really. But it's yeah. still like, changing ownership in a way well i think the the corollary for that in bitcoin is the lightning network because mm, okay. when you're sending satoshis over the lightning network you're not actually transacting on chain you're just sending uh -huh. it through different lightning channels that have liquidity 
And so that would kind of be the, like in the future, you know, 10 years in the future, most people will transact in the Lightning Network. They're not going to actually do on-chain transactions that are visible through chain okay. analysis of the Bitcoin base layer. So it is, it really is a, I mean, Satoshi called it himself a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. And I think mm-hmm. that is the best way to describe it. Very cool. Awesome. Well, yeah, let's get into the last section, technological. So I can start here. Mm-hmm. I would say that there's definitely going to be an explosion of generative AI startups. So we talked about that before, but it seems like ChatGPT is only getting started. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw this, but they have a new embeddings feature where you can mm-hmm. embed your own data to train the model. So we could create a model based on all past, hence the future episodes, or on all Alan Watts lectures, mm-hmm. or we could embed other types of information. So I think we're going to see all different flavors of generalized AI bots and then other applications like more video, animated, mm-hmm. you know, audio, all types of stuff. And I think also there's going to be a rebuttal from Google because it seems like Google has been, you know, their investors are probably pissed that DeepMind was supposed to be so far ahead and now all the attention is on OpenAI's chat GPT. Mm-hmm. So I bet Google is going to come out with some pretty cool products from their DeepMind. And so I think we'll have a little bit of a general AI arms race. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be more competition among search engines. It sounds like Microsoft's Bing is thinking about incorporating chat GPT. So Google's dominance might be challenged. I think there's going to be more open source hardware and software, like we had talked about before. Yeah. The biggest invention that would, I think, change the world more than almost anything is a fully open source hardware and software smartphone that would mm-hmm. be better than Apple, cooler than Apple. And I think a lot of the big tech companies are going to fire a lot of their workforce to stay solvent. And they'll mainly focus on keeping the 10x engineers, like keeping their very best people, and maybe also leaning in a little bit more to automation and robotics where it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think VR and AR won't have a major breakthrough. It seems like 2023, it's just still not quite there. It'll mostly be R&D. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, in general, I just think the technological trend that is most salient to me is just we're moving towards more decentralization kind of breaking the big techs you know big techs walled gardens and Mm -hmm. people are going to look into alternative healthcare like crowd health is interesting alternative Mm -hmm. education like pods homeschooling uh, alternative monetary system like bitcoin and just generally i think there's going to be a breaking up of some of the big behemoths and people will kind of move towards more localism and more resiliency. Yeah. Yeah, those those are all really good points. And, you know, obviously, generative AI in general is going to be the the biggest, I think the fastest moving space. It's already pretty good. But to, to touch on your point about Google, I'm totally, I really think DeepMind is going to be releasing some cool stuff. I, I wonder if they were just a little bit more perfectionist about some of their things. So they have this text image model image in, I think it's still in beta. Um, so some people can use it. I haven't 
used it specifically, but um, it seems like some of the main advantages that they've worked out or some of the kinks that they've worked out are actually really impressive. So like they can, if you, let's just use Dolly or mid journey for example, if you say, make me a, you know, a, a city like times square with a billboard that says this, it struggles with the language aspect and like generating that kind of thing in mm. in the image like you'll have letters that sort of look close to yeah. what's there I've noticed but, that too. Mm-hmm. but with imogen apparently the you know some of the the early um, examples they seem to have figured that out to a degree mm. i'm not i don't know if it's perfect or not but it's one of those cool things that's like pretty important for generative ai to have like language within the images that you're generating um so that's i think that'll be a cool advancement um gpt4 i mean that's that's got to be um i think that's going to be 2023 and uh one of the so speaking of gpt related things and just large language models um it sounds like and this is this is just based on, you know, some reverse, like trying to reverse engineer how GitHub Copilot works and like what kind of model is behind the scenes. Uh, like they use Codex and um, some other, um, some other things, but the model, the language model is not nearly as big as GPT-3. It might be even a 10th of the size of GPT-3. And it's, definitely possible that if if like microsoft or github releases a new much larger version of github copilot specifically for code generation um we could see a huge improvement in these code completion tools because like copilot is is really good but you still have to be really careful about using it in the wrong ways and it can introduce like systemic bugs that you (laughs) that are unexpected because you uh it doesn't have any context of the system so you you just um you can't really trust it to build entire you know applications it's just like and i wonder if if you could use embeddings to help with that where maybe you embed the entire codex of your website or app for mm-hmm. context. And then you can say, Hey, I'm trying to build this extra feature into this. Mm-hmm. So I could see it getting a lot better, by by being more customized to whatever you're actually doing. Yep. Yeah. And, and it's going to be easier for some companies than others. So like for some companies in the way that development has moved the, um, like the entire system, including the inf- the definition of the infrastructure that you're using, everything is defined in code. So if it can have the full context that, and this isn't, I don't know if this is the most common thing in the world of uh, development. I think it's best practice, but a lot of companies still have pieces of their system that are sort of not defined in their code base. Um, you know, if you just have servers that you administer, like it's hard to 
have all of the details of those servers defined in code. Um, but in certain types of architectures, you can have almost everything in your code base. And that would be enough to give the system context for, you know, these AI code generators, which the, like one of the things that I'm thinking with, with this generative AI stuff is individual output is going to, and we've, you know, we've talked about this in our generative AI um, episode, but the individual output will skyrocket by orders of magnitude. And I think that productivity in general, as with most big technological advancements, I mean, it, it, it will increase. And it's just a matter of, do people take the time to learn these new tools and what kind of tools that we haven't even thought of can be built on top of, you know, GPT-3 or some of the image generators. Uh, It does seem that uh, GPT and language models are gonna be the most useful right off the bat, but the image generation is gonna be really cool for just creative output and, especially once people can start creating their own movies, you know, like you, you might create a movie specifically for yourself and maybe your friends that nobody else will ever see. And that's okay. Cause yeah. Like how many years and how many millions of dollars did James Cameron (laughs) spend on the latest avatar? (laughs) Imagine if you could just create something that was that qual that level of quality Mm -hmm. of cinematography and graphics, Mm -hmm. but all from your home with, nothing more than a general AI counterparty mm-hmm. to help you. And I mean, it will, it'll happen at some point, you know? Yeah. And it, it's even potentially going to get to the point where you're walking around in a little game world and it's an interactive generation. Yeah. Uh, that's very cool. Um, okay. But anyways, I can move away from generative AI. It's just, it's the thing I'm thinking <laughs> about the most. Oh, yeah. uh, I think that is probably the single biggest new trend for yeah. 2023. Um, but the, the one, the one other thing, uh, another notable technological leap was the recent, um, uh, like net energy gain from fusion reaction. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is really cool. And I think that's going to drastically improve funding to fusion research. Um, I definitely don't think there's going to be major breakthroughs in 2023, uh, just because fusion is an extremely technologically challenging um, problem to solve. And I think we're still quite a ways from like having scaled net energy gain. Cause this was like net energy gain for one tiny BB sized pellet of, <laughs> you know, yeah. well, hopefully it also, provides more support for nuclear fission, like just the gen Mm four nuclear power plants that we could build today. And if we start actually building out our nuclear capacity, then I'm much more bullish on so many things, Mm -hmm. but currently the base power that is, that all society is depending on is dwindling. And we're trying to add these quote unquote renewable energy sources without actually having enough base load for it to make sense. Mm-hmm. And so I don't see any renewable energy future of solar, wind, hydro, supplanting the fossil fuels, unless we have nuclear. 
Mm-hmm. And so hopefully this nuclear fusion mini breakthrough will create more support and more funding for nuclear related startups. And I'm with you. I'm not bullish on nuclear fusion being commercial ready for at least the next 10 years. But mm-hmm. hopefully in the next 10 years, we build out more nuclear base load around the U.S. and the world. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it, the thing is, though, like these sorts of things need to be pursued, in my opinion. And yeah. even even if it takes a long time, a lot of stuff is learned in the process. Mm-hmm. So like we will get better at manipulating matter. You know, we're going to get better at just understanding and manufacturing pretty actually not pretty, but really, really complicated systems like the uh, it could even help with like the particle acceleration labs. And and there is a lot of private funding in the fusion space and they're, tr- you know, trying to do they have a bunch of different kinds of um, fusion reactors that are in the works. There are several that are claiming to be, you know, production ready by 2024, 2025, which would be awesome. Um, but you know, those claims are always a little optimistic. Yeah, I'm all for the moonshot projects like Fusion, oh. but I personally don't think the government should fund it. Like, I mm-hmm. don't think, I think we should leave it to private entities. Yeah, the the scale and timeline of the the big government projects are absurd to me. Like, it's hard to wrap my head around 25-year projects at... Um, and most of the time, these things don't really pan out in the same way that a private company could. Yeah, well, plus it's like the, the whole term moonshot project comes from us actually NASA taking us to land on the moon. Mm-hmm. And that may have been great back in the 1960s and 70s, but NASA has not been able to do anything close to that since. And it took a private company, SpaceX, to actually innovate in aerospace engineering. And so I don't think the U S government is in any position to create profitable innovation in the way they used to at all. Mm -hmm. So I think any money that gets stolen from taxpayers and dollar holders through inflation to fund these moonshot projects, maybe the stated reason is to have a breakthrough with fusion, but the real Mm -hmm. reason is it creates this massive gravy train of all the bureaucrats and people that rely on that money and they just want to keep their funding. So they do the minimum innovation they need to, to keep getting their funding. Mm -hmm. And if that is not a competitive way to innovate, I would be much happier if we let people keep more of what they earn. And then there's more wealthy private investors that can do things that they're passionate about and that they're Mm -hmm. technically competent at. And so, yeah, I'm very much for the moonshot projects, but anti government taxpayer funding of those projects anymore at least until they can prove themselves to actually do one thing competently which i haven't seen oh yeah i know it's it's just one of those things where having like a lack of constraints particularly in the you know the monetary space and timeline space it just leads to grift and it leads mm-hmm. to really, really bloated projects with too yeah. many people, too many. It's just too much. And I think the too much is actually the problem. <laughs> so, totally. Yeah. Well, maybe now we get into the future scenarios. Cool. Let's do it. 
All right, let's start with the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. So I'll just say quickly what my worst case is for political, economic, social, technological. On the political side, the worst case is that we swing to authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. And like we mentioned in the horseshoe theory, it could be either flavor of authoritarianism, fascism on the right, communism on the left. But what's more likely to be a threat right now or in the next year, 2023, I think is the left version of that. It's basically climate communism, where you're imposing very strict restrictions on people's freedom, what they can buy, what they can spend on, what they're allowed to do, using climate change as the excuse. And mm -hmm. that, I think, is probably the the biggest way that authoritarianism could creep into not only American political system, but all across the world mm -hmm. is through using climate change as the foil. And that's, I think, is the biggest threat politically. Mm -hmm. uh, on the economic side, the worst case is that the Fed tightens way too much and then loosens way too much. Or mm -hmm. just keeps tightening forever, but that doesn't seem at all likely. So I think what tends to happen is the Fed just goes too extreme in either direction. So I think we'll probably keep tightening throughout 2023, even after things break. Mm -hmm. And if that reaches a certain level of people unable to buy the things they need because they're so deep in debt and inflation still is bad, even though we've tried to you know, we've tried to fix inflation by increasing the cost of capital. We could see things like lootings, riots in the streets, people not having enough to eat, not being able to afford a home. And so then there could be some serious unrest. And like you mentioned, I think it is probably going to be worse outside of the U.S. because they're more downstream of the money printer. Mm -hmm. But that, I think, is the biggest, that's the biggest risk economically is just we have a quote unquote greater recession that is implemented from the housing market bursting, stocks bursting, everything mm -hmm. bursting while inflation is still high. So people have no assets, but they have expenses as high as ever. Mm -hmm. On the social side, I think the biggest risk is in the worst case scenario is that Elon does step down from Twitter and put someone in that's much more authoritarian or not free speech minded, or maybe they pretend to be free speech minded, but really they just end up being just as bad as the censors previously. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think this is as bad because there are already open source alternatives like Noster, N-O-S-T-R, which is built on the Lightning Network. Hmm. And Jack Dorsey recently has been tweeting about that. And then Elon went ahead and banned any meant any link to Noster or link to Instagram or links to other third-party sites. And he has since taken that back and that's no longer a rule. Mm -hmm. So at least he's learning from what the reactions are. And, and, but then right after that, he put up a poll saying, should I step down from Twitter? Mm -hmm. And currently it's 57% yes. So it does seem like Elon will, if he's true to his word, will step down from Twitter. So I think the biggest risk is just whoever takes his place. And, you know, the worst case scenario, obviously it's not likely, but it would be someone like, you know, Trudeau or, or <laughs> Schwab or even someone that's not known at all, but just yeah, sympathetic to the causes. 
Yeah, exactly. Someone who's just not going to allow for free discussion of any issue that might arise. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, there are alternatives out there. So I'm not actually that worried about that. Mm -hmm. And then technological, I would say the worst case scenario is that the AI becomes sentient and authoritarian in 2023. Mm -hmm. And Sam Altman, the guy who created OpenAI, he's a total statist authoritarian guy. He's the one who created WorldCoin that scans everyone's eyeballs. And so the fact that this is the guy behind ChatGPT makes me a little nervous that if ChatGPT does become very capable, whether or not it's sentient, through learning from what everyone is putting into ChatGPT 24-7, that's not the best AI for humanity if it's run by a guy like Sam Altman. And so I am a little worried about where that goes. I think Google Mm -hmm. also has some issues on the ethical alignment front. And so DeepMind also is a risk. And Mm -hmm. I would just say more broadly speaking, if technology continues to move towards the Chinese style social credit system where everything is monitored and controlled, and it seems like the big tech companies are already moving in that direction, that is the biggest risk of all, I think. Yeah. But even that, I mean... At least we have Bitcoin and some things that are outside of the state. But, you know, it certainly would be a lot easier of a battle if, um, you know, the tech companies and the generalized AI companies weren't fully aligned with the state. If it was more of like we're all players on our, you know, one chessboard, but we all have various incentives, then we can come to something that makes sense for everyone. Mm-hmm. But I guess, so I guess my main concern is that the authoritarian state and the big tech companies and general AI is all on one side. And then you, you have that very lopsided and then the freedom minded Bitcoiners and mm-hmm. cypherpunks and free speech, sovereign individuals are, you know, much less powerful side of that equation. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm with you on, on almost all of that. So my worst case is um, I kind of baked all of the, um categories into one worst yeah, case scenario um so i think so my worst case is when um when we think about the advancement of ai and the individual output and also the the fact that there's a lot of trimming of fat in the um world of companies and i think this is going to be something throughout you know throughout the entire world not just u.s markets um there's there's going to be this i think 2023 is a building and like a chess piece or it's like a path a step on the path that could be a long-term worst case scenario so the step on the 20, the 2023 step towards the worst case would be a ton of trimming of fat, a very high increase in productivity. And what this would lead to is less um, rehiring of the people that were trimmed in 2023. Mm, like the growth and, of a useless class, basically. Yes, 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 yes. And, but to the point where it's like the useless class is huge like (laughs) to um i i just see it i could see the the situation play out where there's 
so many, uh, there's so much automation and so much, um, just, just so much advancement in the AI space that they, that no one gets hired back and there's nothing, there's not enough abundance to account for the, those people yet. Mm -hmm. Um, and down the road that just leads to insane resource concentration and, um, to the point like inequality, like we haven't seen, at least in the U S yeah, uh, we've seen these, this kind of inequality in some developing countries, but if this becomes widespread and worldwide, then that's like <laughs> unrest, social unrest and on a scale we've never seen before. And, you know, that leads to wars and, you know, Wars is the big thing because yeah. if people don't have the resources they need to survive, then that's, <laughs> yeah. So anyways, that's, that's kind of my, uh, my worst case for, <laughs> yeah. for all of no, these I think that's well, put. well, let's move to the best case now. Best case scenario. So kind of, kind of similar thing, um, for me is there, just the the other side of the same coin is we've got enough abundance and enough individual output where people can contribute meaningfully without having to spend years to develop skills on certain kinds of things. So in the best case, anybody can just collaborate with AI to do whatever it is that they want to do. And um, I think it's weird that this is like the the best case and worst case are so closely related in in my scenarios but um yeah i i think with enough forethought and with enough support and from you know companies government and with just a relatively functioning system a monetary system this this can definitely we can go from worst case to best case and people have enough resources to cover anything that they need. And people in developing countries can contribute on a scale that they haven't been able to before, you know, with internet reaching the corners of the earth that normally haven't had any um, connectivity to the rest of the world. Like anybody can contribute anything to anyone. And, the the useful output of humans might completely skyrocket and we do have you know it leads to an era of radical abundance um either way i don't think these things are going to happen in 2023 but like i said it could just be the the step on the path to one of these outcomes <laughs> um yeah so curious yeah what i think thinking. that's I think that's good. Uh, and kind of an interesting counter to your worst case that you mentioned the best case is kind of similar or the same, the other side of the same coin. Mm -hmm. It does seem like on the one hand, you have a lot of people will become obsolete, the quote unquote useless class. If mm -hmm. AI is so advanced, then a yeah. lot of these middle manager jobs will simply go away. And so you could basically have like one engineer 
do the work of a hundred engineers because he has AI supporting him. And then maybe those other engineers, they're just simply not good enough to warrant being hired. And mm -hmm. so you have all these useless people. Now, I would say the counter to that is that in the Bitcoin world, even being the most old school type of like being someone who makes cheese or being mm -hmm. someone who like knits sweaters or someone who creates uh, you know hydroelectric power or whatever mm -hmm. you do, all of things that are considered old jobs that wouldn't be attractive jobs in the year 2020, let's say, mm -hmm. those become cool again because you can store the what you actually make from the product of your labor in a form of money that holds its value and actually grows over time. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, not every engineer that gets fired is going to become a cheese maker, but mm -hmm. some of them could, and then other ones could become, you know, create some type of hot sauce from the, you know, whatever they grow or they, yeah. so basically my point is that a lot of the old school jobs come become cool again and become profitable again mm. once you're on a sound money system. Okay. And part of why it's so warped now is because it is like we're living in Weimar, Germany, where you don't know what things are going to cost next month, next year. You don't know what people are, are going to need, aren't going to need. And everyone's trying to cut costs and increase their income and people are mm. stealing from one another and, and yeah. lying and all this nefarious stuff. Once you get back to sound money, you can be a cheesemaker and you can live yeah. a great life. You know? Yeah. The rise of the craftsmen again. Yeah, it's like Monty Python. Blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, anyways, I would say my best case scenario. Uh, so I broke it out down into political, economic, social, technological. And political is that we have a new political leader that could be like a young Ron Paul. Someone mm -hmm. who is libertarian minded, who's not super partisan, like leftist or rightist but someone who just speaks the truth in a way that everyone can get behind and bring us into alignment with reality and bring us back to a sound money system, get rid of a lot of the bloat of government and someone who's really just going to not be beholden to any of the lobbying groups or the military industrial complex or any of these forces that tend to take control of whoever the presidential candidates are, someone who can actually lead us forward into the future, whether Republican or Democrat or independent or green party or libertarian, it doesn't even matter. But that would be my ideal is we have like a new young Ron Paul who mm -hmm. blows out of the water that, you know, the Trumps and the Bidens of the world. Yeah. On the economic side, I would say that the best case scenario is the fed does have a smooth landing so it does only raise interest rates until things break. Then it eases slowly enough so that we don't have massive hyperinflation all at once. And it's a lot to ask for. I don't necessarily think this is likely, but that would be the best case economically. Mm -hmm. On the social side, I, I mean, the best case would be, you know, someone like I mentioned, Edward Snowden or Julian Assange is in charge of Twitter. But realistically, <laughs> it's probably not likely, <laughs> given that those are both... Uh, you know, not exactly like they're still being hunted down by the state, basically. <laughs> um, but we could have someone who is free speech minded and maybe they're not a known person. Maybe they're just someone who 
is aligned with the First Amendment, and maybe it's better that they're not known. And Elon mm-hmm. can focus on innovating with rockets and electric cars and other things. Mm-hmm. And then this person can actually just implement policies that make sense on Twitter. And then the entire world can eventually realign towards the truth and we can move forward and we can get, we can put aside all of these constant psyops that are and censorship campaigns that are being taken place. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I would say is technological. I think the single biggest, most bullish thing for technology would be if there was a breakthrough open source software and hardware smartphone. And I could see this really becoming big in a short time period. Like just imagine if there was some company that had a fully open source hardware and software and it looked really cool, looked sleek. And all of a sudden you start to see people walking around with it. Maybe even a couple of celebrities have it. And then all of a sudden it's way cooler to own this phone than it is to own an iPhone. Mm-hmm. And then overnight, basically we could have everyone more aligned towards privacy towards open source hardware and software against surveillance Mm -hmm. and i think we are you know if not next year we are at least at most a few years away from that and yeah i think all of those trends kind of work together it really is just a move away from centralized control over what you're allowed to think what you're allowed to say how you're allowed to spend your money into Mm -hmm. just more power for individuals to decide how to spend their money say what they want take whatever actions they want as long as they're not fringing on the actions of others yeah very cool and there is a there is an awakening that's taking place and so i don't think that awakening can be put back in the bottle Mm -hmm. i agree yeah that's even like part of part of the uh, likely scenario that awakening (laughs) yeah definitely well yeah let's do the likely most likely scenario In the likely scenario for 2023, the current thing isn't going to have as much weight as it has had. And I also think that with with the technological advancements, we are going to see a huge increase in productivity. And it's easy enough for the average person to get up to speed that an average engineer can be a good engineer in the right you know, in the right organization. Um, now it's still a matter of like, how much are engineers going to be paid if most of the code is written by um, artificial intelligence? And I think that there's going to be corrections on all fronts. Like software engineer salaries might be a lot higher now than they might be for a really long time until there's a much more specialized um sort of engineer like a quantum program designer or something um so there there will be corrections economically there will be corrections (laughs) socially i think 2023 is just a year of corrections honestly people Mm -hmm. are seeing that they can't necessarily trust everything that the people, the experts are saying, and I think that's becoming more and more understood by even like people on all sides of the political spectrum. And, you know, trusting experts is no longer a political thing. It's just, a <laughs> you, you know, people are learning to think for themselves a little bit more 
Um, and I don't know, I'm, I'm usually a little bit more of the pessimist here, but I'm pretty optimistic for 2023. Um, yeah. So, yeah, me too. I, I see 2023 as being an improvement on 2022 without any major reversals. So I think a lot of the trends will continue, but mm-hmm. like we said in the beginning, I don't think we're going to see major changes until 2024. Mm-hmm. But on the political side, I think it is probably too much to ask for a young Ron Paul libertarian candidate to take everyone's hearts and minds. But mm-hmm. I think it is likely that we'll have people that are more focused on centrist policies that are more popular. So on the right, we might have someone more like DeSantis. On the left, someone more like Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema. Mm-hmm. On the economic side, I think the Fed will probably tighten too much and then ease too quickly. And that's what they tend to do. It's this yo-yoing. And Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be hard. I think there will be some crashes in the housing market, stocks, things like that. And then once they reverse course, we'll see all those assets skyrocket, especially Bitcoin, which has absolute digital scarcity. Mm -hmm. On the social side, I think we will move towards free speech regardless of what happens on Twitter, whether it's the path of open source platforms like Noster or whether it's Twitter itself and then other mainstream platforms also go more on the side of free speech like Facebook and Instagram. I think that is unavoidable that we are going towards free speech. And then with technology, I think we are going to see this AI arms race, the generative AI arms race. That'll be probably the most interesting thing for us to keep tabs on. Mm -hmm. Open source will continue to grow and flourish. Uh, The big tech companies will try to keep their walled gardens tight and they'll try to you know, implement stricter rules seems somewhat likely while trimming the fat. But a lot of these trends, I think, are pretty much unavoidable. Like we're going to we're going to see more freedom, more individual liberty and, you know, less less command and control in the long run, Mm -hmm. I, I, I would say. But 2023 will probably be a little more of the same until the massive 2024 reversal happens. That's that's generally how I'm modeling out next year. Nice. Yeah. And I would say it's always harder to predict when the there's a major reversal than, oh, things are just going to keep continuing forever in the right. same way they have been. And so I think actually the single biggest risk is that people get lulled into a sense of complacency where they think the trends that happened through 2022 are just going to keep happening. And a lot of people, I think, will, they'll sell their Bitcoin for cash Mm -hmm. and then the reversal will happen and they'll be left with worthless cash Mm -hmm. and they won't have any hard assets. I think that's the biggest risk in 2023. Mm -hmm. Yeah, through these these reversals and corrections is where fortunes are made. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, this is this is one for the history books for sure. <laughs> All right, well, I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future. A computer.